listening to the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. In this episode, the team behind the Salmon of Steel project invite you and some guest speakers to join them on a journey along the River Don, exploring the rich history of the river and its surroundings. This podcast takes you on a journey, both along the River Don in Sheffield and also through time, to tell the story of the river and its surroundings. We will hear about castles, graveyards, salmon, steel and even elephants, which are all connected in various ways to the River Don. There will be lures with the death of the Don, but ultimately is a story of hope with the ecological rebirth of the river. We start our journey at Kellam Island Museum in one of Sheffield's oldest industrial districts. This building was once a powerhouse for the city of Sheffield, generating electricity for the city's tram network. Before electricity, the river was used to fuel Sheffield. Weirs harnessed the power of the river's water to turn water mills. First it was used for milling corn, but later powering foundries of Sheffield steel. Look for the weir spanning the river and the goit that creates the Kellam Island. Kellam Island Weir was just one of many weirs throughout the city of Sheffield. In 1760, it's recorded that there were 161 weirs between the centre of Sheffield and the headwaters of the river. That actually equated to a weir every 300 metres of river length. As far as fish populations were concerned, fish became trapped between these structures. But most profoundly affected were salmon because salmon needed to ascend the river right up into the headwaters to reproduce successfully. And ascending all these structures became physically impossible. And by the end of the 18th century, 1796, salmon populations were recorded as having disappeared completely from the River Don system. Sheffield's rivers are intertwined with the city's industrial past, and clues to this rich history all around on the riverbanks, where many have toiled and grafted. Next we will hear about one of the more unusual residents of Sheffield who lived and worked on the banks of the Don. Hi, I'm Sally Hislop and I work for the Don Catchment Rivers Trust, which works to protect and restore the rivers of the Don Catchment area. Thanks to the rich industrial history of the Don, the river here in Sheffield is surrounded by fascinating buildings, all with their own story to tell. But none is quite so interesting as the story of Castle House and the Royal Exchange buildings that stand here on Ladies Bridge. The beautiful burnt orange glaze of the bricks make this collection of buildings pop out against the landscape. Victorian architects originally chose to use glazed bricks in industrial areas such as these as they were easily cleaned of smoke and soot. Originally built for a vet's, it housed a dog's home and a stables. You can still see a carving that reads horses as you pass the side of the building. But later on, it housed a much bigger guest. During World War I, an Indian elephant called Lizzie could be found here. During the war, a circus had come to the city and settled in the area. Lizzie, one of the animal menagerie, was loaned towards steel to haul metal in replacement of horses which had been conscripted for the war effort. She was looked after by the circus's lion tamer, 
Alfonso, and slept in the stables of this very building. The steel produced in Sheffield was crucial to the war effort, and Lizzie would be seen collecting scrap metal around the city to keep up the demand in metal production. As we travel further back in time to the medieval period, we return to an age when the sparkling clean rivers of Sheffield were relatively unspoilt, and shoals of salmon swam from the sea many miles up the Don to reach spawning grounds in and above the city. Some undoubtedly ended up on the plates of the people in the village of Sheffield, or fed the inhabitants of the dominating castle. John Morland shares the story of Sheffield's castle on the banks of the River Don. My name's John Morland, and I'm Professor of Medieval Archaeology at the University of Sheffield. I lead our Castlegate project, which has studied the records of excavations carried out by, on the site of Sheffield Castle in the 1920s and in the 1950s, and working with Sheffield City Council, the Friends of Sheffield Castle and Wessex Archaeology, we seek to use this heritage uh, to affect the regeneration of Castlegate. Sheffield Castle was located on a slight eminence at the junction of the River Sheaf and the River Don. Uh, excavations there by Wessex Archaeology in the late summer of 2018 have demonstrated that the earliest significant settlement here was a classic Norman modern Bailey castle, probably dating to the early to mid-12th century. The fortified mound stood in the middle of what is now the castle site, perhaps surrounded by a moat, but certainly with the palisaded enclosure defining the area overlooking the Don. By the end of the 13th century, the castle was a magnificent structure with high walls, towers, a gatehouse and a deep moat. Texts from the late 15th century tell us that among the castle buildings were three towers, a prison, a great hall, a chapel, a kitchen, bakehouse and guesthouse. So, while it was certainly formidable, it is also clear that the castle could provide the hospitality demanded and expected by its aristocratic residents and visitors something we'll come back to. The monumental nature of the castle was highlighted by the scale of the remains discovered during excavations by local men, Leslie Armstrong and Joseph Hemsworth in the 1920s, and by Leslie Butcher in the 1950s. They showed that the walls of the gatehouse still stood seven metres high, and that the bottom of the moat lie 11 metres below the level of modern Exchange Street. The waterlogged nature of the deposits in the moat, what they referred to as a black, tenacious sludge, none too fragrant, contained many important finds, including cannonballs, stone ballista balls, knives, keys, personal ornaments, coins, glass and leather, kitchen refuse such as potsherds, animal bones, antlers of red deer, roe deer, fallow deer and oyster shells. Now these finds and those made by Wessex Archaeology in 2018, provide us with tremendous insights into life in Sheffield in the latter part of the Middle Ages. The leather, for example, allows us to talk about 15th century fashions and footwear, while the animal bones, and there were some fish bones too, provide insights into diet and feasting. But they also force us to place the castle in a wider landscape. Where did the deer and the fish come from? I'll come back to that in a moment, but first I want to say a little bit about one of the castle's most famous residents. Mary Queen of Scots arrived at Sheffield Castle in November 1570 and spent 14 years there as prisoner. Elizabeth I probably chose Sheffield Castle as prison for Queen Mary because, 
George, sixth Earl of Shrewsbury, had the wealth needed to maintain a woman who, as Patrick Collinson has pointed out, had to be realistically seen as a possible, even probable, future ruler of England. Collison's summary of expenditure on Mary's upkeep in the last months of her life showed both the expense of keeping a captive queen and her entourage and the kinds of things they ate and drank. Collison tells us, Mary and her people consumed, or at least had placed at their tables, 353 tonnes of beer, 28 tonnes of white wine from Gascony. The meat bill came to a colossal £2,279, two shillings and fourpence, including 158 carcasses of beef, 1,341 sheep, 497 cows, 398 lambs, almost a thousand pigs of different kinds, and 617 pounds worth of sundry poultry, pigeons and rabbits. The fish bill, for £1,569, 5 shillings and 11 pence, covered 721 codfish, 489 ling and salmon, turbot, salt beetles, white herons, red herons, sprouts, pike, barbel, chub, tench and perch. 40 gallons of olive oil were required to dress the salads. Now, while these accounts relate to the time after she had left Sheffield Castle, they nevertheless highlight the fact that late medieval aristocracies provisioned their feasts from a wide and varied landscape. Clearly, some of the elements came from overseas. Remember the white wine from Gascony. But much, perhaps most, would have come from the surrounding landscape. One of the central aims of our work on Sheffield Castle has been to situate it in its contemporary lordly landscape, including the Great Deer Park, which rose eastwards to the hunting lodge we now call Manor Lodge. Sheffield Deer Park was one of the largest in medieval England and was probably the source for the 50 does and 29 red deer killed and cooked for the great dinner that followed the funeral of Francis Talbot, for 5th Earl of Shrewsbury on the 21st of October 1560, and also of the red deer, roe deer and fallow deer antlers excavated by Leslie Armstrong in 1927. A letter from Francis records the supply of bucks from the park to the court of Henry VIII in 1541, while in the early 17th century the 7th Earl, Gilbert, had bucks driven to an area near the town where all the parish butchers were allowed to kill as many as they were able. In the late 16th century, the 6th Earl's servant Robert Bradshaw wrote to him about supplies to the castle, including wine, fish, pasties, venison and pheasants to be led in there for the coming Christmas tide. Parks typically contained not only deer, but also rabbits, hares, wild boar, pigs, game birds, cattle, sheep and fish. And there's good evidence that many of these were to be found in Sheffield Park. In a survey of 1637, conducted by John Harrison for the Earl of Arundel, we're told that ye sight of ye manor or mansion house called Sheffield Castle, being fairly built with stone and very spacious, containeth diverse buildings and lodgings about an inward courtyard and all offices thereto belonging. Having a great ditch about ye same, 
ye great river of dawn lying in ye north part thereof, and ye lesser river called ye little sheath on ye east part thereof. Having on ye south an outward courtyard or fold builded around with diverse houses of office as an armory, a granary, barn, stables and diverse lodgings. Harrison stressed the bountiful nature of the manor of Sheffield, highlighting the straightness and bigness of the trees in the park, the presence of good building stone and grinding stone for knives and scythes. He then went on to say that this manor is not only profitable, but for pleasure also, being furnished with red deer and fallow, with hares, some roes, with pheasants and a great store of partridges, and moor game in abundance, both red and black, as moorcocks, moorhens and young poots upon ye moors, also mallard, teal, hernshoes, probably heron, and plover. Importantly, he went on to say that ye chiefest fishing within this manor is in ye river that passes through the same, wherein are great store of salmon, trouts, chevens, eels, and other small fish. The aristocracy of Sheffield Castle not only claimed ownership over, dominion over, this bounteous natural world, they defined themselves as aristocrats by killing and eating it. But it was also the route to resistance to lordly power. On the 17th of December 1657, local poachers Daniel Bingley and James Bromley, in a clear act of defiance, fixed a deer's head to the cross in Sheffield Marketplace with a note pronouncing their hunting as legal and noting that there had once been a parliament engaged to root out and suppress all lords of manners. Perhaps the three men depicted in the water at the junction of the Sheaf and the Dawn in the 1825 painting of the River Sheaf and Shrewsbury Hospital, currently on display in Western Park Museum, perhaps they were also availing themselves of the Lord's Bounty, but it wouldn't be available for much longer. The castle had been demolished in the middle of the 17th century, and the site was subsequently covered in factories, steelworks and hotels. Slaughterhouses were built along the south bank of the Don in the late 18th century. A description of the area in 1875 makes for very grim reading. On either side of Ladies Bridge, we are told, are low black-looking buildings and beneath it a stream of ink. Looking over the bridge towards Blanc Street, the long black wall of the killing shambles may be seen, an object to be almost pitied were it human, in its filthiness. Pouring from openings in the walls of these shambles is the refuse from the slaughterhouses, poisoning the river and rendering the atmosphere in this vicinity almost pestilential. Things have changed much since then, and we're now looking forward to the regeneration of Castlegate. However that happens, whatever form it takes, we would hope that it works in harmony with nature rather than seeking to dominate it as both medieval aristocrats and 19th century industrialists, each in their own way, tried to do. Slaughterhouse effluent was just one of many forms of pollution that poisoned the Don. The river served as a convenient conduit for disposing of all kinds of waste, not just from factories and workshops, but also the waste produced by Sheffielders themselves, as we hear about next. As the Industrial Revolution turned Sheffield from a small town into an industrial city, so the population swelled, 
with families coming to the city to find work. In 1801, the population of Sheffield was 45,755. In just 90 years, the population had boomed to 325,547. With no adequate means of disposing of the waste created by the population, the streets became awash with sewage, which flushed into the streams and gullies and into the Don. For a long time, the situation was accepted by authorities, as the river was one of the most effective ways of disposing of waste. This attitude is made manifest in the former Victorian public loos at Blanc Street. These small, round, squat, grade 2 listed buildings sit directly above the confluence of the River Sheaf with the River Don. And for good reason. They allowed Sheffielders to relieve themselves straight into the river. As the population of Sheffield continued to increase, the situation deteriorated. In 1891, the medical officer of the city reported, It would be hard to find in any town poorer conditions that are to be found in the centre of Sheffield. Nuisance and unsanitary conditions of every description abound. Diseases such as cholera and typhoid spread from privy middens and filthy unpaved courts into rubble sewers and contaminated water, and waste flows down steep hill slopes into the river and streams. The urgency of the unsanitary conditions led authorities to create Sheffield's first sewage treatment facility, Blackburn Meadows, located between Sheffield and Rotherham. This first step towards processing sewage, rather than dumping it in the river, was revolutionary, and was a major milestone in dealing with this cause of water pollution. No longer toilet stops. Nowadays, Sheffield's bridges allow us to admire the River Don from above. On a warm, sunny day, the sparkling Don softly flows below the arches of Blanc Street Bridge. But in times of high rainfall and flood, these strong brick structures are forced to withstand the true power of the river. Along the river from here, another bridge can be seen, a huge viaduct. Suspended between the viaduct and the river is a metal walkway called the Cobweb Bridge, which allows you to pass under the viaduct arches and admire it from below. The Cobweb Bridge is located under the historic Wicker Arches Railway Viaduct near the disused Sheffield Victoria Railway Station. It was built as a key part of the Five Weirs Walk, a public path and cycle route created to give Sheffielders access to the Don so they could discover and enjoy the recovering river. The walk, which runs from Ladies Bridge in the city centre to the Meadowhall Shopping Centre on the outskirts of Sheffield, was created by the Five Weirs Walk Trust, a handful of dedicated enthusiasts that were supported by the local authorities, companies, charities and countless members of the public. Creating the walk was no small task and required negotiations with numerous riparian landowners and leaseholders, the drawing up of access agreements, the generation of public support and much fundraising. In total, it took over 20 years of hard work to create the walk, with the last part finally being put in place in 2007. The bridge itself was built in 2002 and was an important step as without it the Five Weirs Walk would have required a major diversion away from the river to circumvent the viaduct. Instead, an innovative 100 metre long bridge was designed that hung suspended from the ceiling of the viaduct arch through which the River Don flows. The web of steel cables inspired the name of the bridge and makes walkers feel as though they are crossing the river on a giant spider's web. The Cobweb Bridge allows people to cross a barrier in the urban fabric of Sheffield. But in urban areas, wildlife often needs a helping hand too. Green space along the Don provides important stepping stones for nature, helping animals and plants to disperse across the landscape, 
despite the obstacles represented by the city. Next we hear of one such outpost of nature in the heart of industrial Sheffield. My name is Paul Richards and I work for Sheffield and Rotherham Wildlife Trust and I'm here on the edge of Attercliff at the Salmon Pastures Nature Reserve. It's just off to the side of the main path along the river between Norfolk Bridge and Washford Bridge. The path through the reserve is marked by a wooden wildlife trust sign. There's also an old engraved stone dedication panel from the Salmon Pastures School that marks the location. The school was on the adjacent Warren Street and briefly became an annex of Parkwood College but was demolished in 1997. Salmon Pastures Nature Reserve is a fairly small reserve, in fact it's the smallest one managed by the Wildlife Trust, but it is a nice little green refuge among the industrial buildings. It's been preserved because it's an important element of green space near the city centre in an otherwise built-up environment, and it offers a stepping stone for species as part of the green corridor along the river. This allows species to move from one area to another without getting isolated, the site has a small area of woodland containing birch, alder, hawthorn and rowan, with occasional regenerating sycamore and willow thrown into the mix. However, the site is mainly managed to encourage the grassland and tiny areas of heath that are found here. Lowland heath is an important and scarce habitat that supports a specific range of wildlife. The grassland includes species of plant that are indicative of acid grassland, such as red fescue and wavy hair grass. There is also a lot of knapweed and bramble, providing nectar for the pollinating insects. Other plant species found in the dry soils here include the yellow bird's foot trefoil, bluebell and the red flower heads of salad bonnet. The herbs and heathers attract a lot of insects. Several kinds of butterfly can be seen in the summer, including the recently arrived Essex skipper. There are also a good number of significant hoverfly species, dragonflies, moths, and all sorts of other invertebrates. A variety of birds nest in the trees and feed on the plants and insects. I've also seen a family of foxes playing here. Now that pollution levels have been controlled in the river, the invertebrates that rely on the water have thrived. Mayflies, stoneflies and caddis provide food for the pied and grey wagtails and their aquatic larvae, along with water lice and other invertebrates in the river, feed the fish, which in turn attract kingfishers and herons, and even otters. The site has been known as salmon pastures for hundreds of years, but it's a long time since salmon actually bred here. Salmon were once considered so prolific in this area that it's said that apprentices in local factories had a clause in their contract limiting the number of times they would be fed salmon for lunch. The chief cause of the salmon's demise was the installation of numerous weirs in the river, which prevented them from returning upstream to spawn. In recent years, a number of fish passes have been constructed along the river to enable the salmon to travel past the weirs and further along the river. This has been successful with the return of salmon confirmed after an absence of more than 200 years. In early 2019, the Environment Agency published a picture of a 31 inch, that's 79 centimetres, salmon caught nearby. And in 2020, another picture was published of a salmon caught further along the Don 
The fish spend years in the sea as far away as Iceland, feeding and fattening up for the journey back to the river. Fish passes make it easier for the weary salmon to reach suitable areas to breed. Adult salmon rarely feed in fresh water, so they need to conserve their energy. Once here, the cleaner water is now able to provide the invertebrate food to sustain the growing young salmon, which are known as fry, par and smolt. As access to the full length of the river is provided for the migrating and returning fish, there is every chance that you'll be able to regularly see salmon once again at salmon pastures. As you visit the site, you can record any species that you see on the Nature Counts page at wildsheffield.com forward slash sightings, where the information can be used to manage the site and conserve species. One mile downstream of salmon pastures is another green oasis, the Attercliffe Municipal Cemetery, which lies between the River Don and Attercliffe Road. The final resting place for many of Attercliffe's workers and residents, it's worth exploring this peaceful space. Further along the trail is the graveyard of Attercliffe Christchurch, which was badly damaged in the Sheffield Blitz and no longer stands. The old church hall can still be spotted. Hidden away nearby, and on occasion open to the public, lies another of Attercliffe's graveyards and secret green spaces, the Zion Graveyard. The Friends of Zion Graveyard protect this special place and research the people that are buried here, who reveal a picture of life in industrial Attercliffe. You can find cutlers, scissor makers, brass and iron founders, a teacher, a chemist and a bootmaker here. It's also the final resting place of anti-slavery campaigner Mary Ann Rawson. In the 19th century, Mary was a leading light in the Sheffield area for the anti-slavery campaign. She was a founding member in 1825 of the Sheffield Female Anti-Slavery Society, which campaigned for the freedom of the slaves and successfully boycotted goods produced by slaves, such as coffee and sugar. These hallowed grounds have seen great changes to the surrounding Lower Don Valley. 200 years ago, the valley was mostly rural, with three main villages, Attercliffe, Carbrook and Darnall, which were prominent in the early days of Sheffield's metal industry. 100 years later, the massive growth of industry had transformed the whole of the Lower Don Valley into a great conurbation with back-to-back steelworks, kilns, mills, railways, a forest of chimneys, mounds of coal and waste materials, and rows of terrace housing for workers and their families. Imagine the air thick with smoke and fumes and the sounds of machinery and workers crushing and banging. Salon clearances and the decline of heavy industry ushered in a further transformation of the valley here. Demolition of derelict works opened up large areas of brownfield land. Communities relocated and the buildings that served them, like pubs and churches, declined. Many of the large open areas have now been built on with modern developments such as the Meadowhall Shopping Centre, the Sheffield Arena and the Olympic Legacy Park. While a significant amount of heavy industry remains, the character of the Lower Don Valley has completely changed. The graveyards and cemeteries that remain serve as a reminder of the communities and the people that once lived here. Walking down busy Attercliffe Road towards the canal, you may spot some of the older buildings, grand banks and Victorian shop fronts, a reminder of a different time. 
One of the most famous films which uh, features Sheffield is, of course, the comedy film The Full Monty, filmed here in 1997. It features various parts of Sheffield um, and, of course, the canal in the opening scenes where Gaz and Dave get stuck on top of a sinking car alongside a bridge, um, which is actually Bacon Lane Bridge in Attercliffe. My name is Lizzie Dealey. I work for the charity The Canal and River Trust, which cares for the Sheffield and Tinsley Canal, and I'm here to tell you a little bit more about this waterway. If you could choose a day to go back to in time along this canal, it would definitely be the 22nd of February 1819, which was the grand opening of the brand new canal. It was such an important aspect of the city that a general holiday had been called and crowds of spectators came to see the very first boats arrive from Tinsley. There were reportedly 60,000 people lining the banks of the canal all the way up to the canal basin in the centre of the city. Back in February 2019, the Canal and River Trust organised a 200th birthday party for this canal and we had a fantastic um, unseasonably sunny day with a flotilla of boats um, including a brass band playing traveling along this canal and it really was a great scene to see all the way from Bacon Lane Bridge all the way as you walk along towards Victoria Keys. You're standing now in Victoria Keys which is the very end point of the Sheffield and Tinsley Canal. This canal is just under four miles long in total and it forms part of the Sheffield and South Yorkshire navigation, which is the navigation, the waterway that runs between Sheffield and Keedby on the River Trent. Victoria Keys has got a real blend of architectural styles, and this is because in the latter part of the last century, um, the canal basin was very derelict. There was a large restoration project in the early 1990s, and this has led to this blend of styles that you see today. There are a number of the original buildings that are now Grade 2 listed around the quayside and you can see the original terminal warehouse in the distance, the straddle warehouse which spans the waterway and a number of the curved terraces um, as you walk towards the city centre. Amongst these Grade 2 listed buildings there are the archways which you can see running along one side of the quays and these have got varying uses today. So there's a cafe, there's a bar, and there's also the Canal and River Trust Information Centre where we try to encourage people to learn more about this canal and to take part in looking after it and volunteering. And it's also an important aspect as well of our school programme so that we can bring school groups down here to explain the importance of the waterways, both their historical importance and the importance they have today. If you take a closer look at the bar within those arches, you'll see that it's called the Dorothy Pax. The name comes after the last wooden keel, um, the type of boat that was used on the Sheffield and Tinsley Canal, and actually some of the reclaimed timber has been used within this bar. I always think of this canal as a bit of a diamond in the rough. There are some really beautiful aspects of the canal, such as the mature trees lining the towpath and the reflections in the water as you walk along. And it complements really beautifully with the industrial heritage all around the canal. But there are some antisocial aspects too, and you'll have no doubt noticed graffiti and unfortunately litter as you've walked along. These are real challenges that the Canal and River Trust has to deal with, specifically in urban locations. 
fly tipping and litter is a real big problem for the charity and it costs us over a million pounds every year to deal with these problems. One of the ways in which we're trying to brighten up and make our waterside spaces better is by using street art. And now you'll be standing alongside a huge mural painted alongside the canal on the towpath wall in Attercliffe. This was created in 2019 um, to help mark the 200th anniversary of the canal. And it was done in conjunction with the local arts collective called Concrete Canvas, as well as funding from the People's Postcode Lottery. And that all helped bring together 13 different street artists to create this beautiful display of pieces. The charity is really, really keen to continue on this work and involve more and more community groups in the creation of artwork and other projects to help brighten up and make the canal feel more loved and make it feel like a better place, a more enjoyable place to walk alongside. So as you walk alongside today, do appreciate that this is a work in progress and I really hope that you'll be able to come in future years to watch how this canal improves and just becomes a better place for everybody who uses it. So thank you for being our travelling companion on this journey. The future of the Don looks bright, with the river an increasingly valued part of Sheffield. That's not to say there aren't many issues remaining, and indeed much more needs to be done to improve the river. But with iconic species like salmon returning and wildlife thriving, this is surely something to celebrate in these environmentally troubled times. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. Oh.